Tere, and welcome to History of Estonia podcast. Episode 48, The Estonian SSR and the New Era of Russification. This is the first episode since the Christmas break and the family's trip to Estonia. We had a great time. We went hiking in a frozen bog and deep snow, and it was beautiful, really. It was great weather in Estonia for wintertime. It stayed below freezing, which allowed a dusting of clean white snow to keep everything looking picturesque. We were invited to and attended two different small sauna parties with close friends. And I also met up with an old friend from the time I lived in Tallinn in the late 90s, Phil Marsdale. Phil is also the owner of ILS, International Language Services, since 1988, when I first met him. From September to December of last year, I was actually a client at ILS. I took an Estonian language course taught by Phil's wife, Kadri. Kadri's a great teacher and was very patient with me, which was critically important as learning a difficult language can be frustrating and intimidating at times. Kadri custom catered the course to my particular needs, and we met twice weekly via Zoom. At the end of the course, my wife, Eve, was very happy with my improvement, so I intend to continue on my quest for Estonian language proficiency. So, if you have been considering improving your Estonian language skills, get in contact with International Language Services and tell them I said, Tere. I have mentioned previously my opinion on the need for a peaceful NATO presence in Estonia, and of course the other Baltic countries. While Estonians are strong in their desire to defend their homeland, let's face it, with its size and the population, it would simply not be able to defend itself for a prolonged period of time without some help. Putin feels personally responsible for restoring Russia's perceived greatness, and that means holding on to as many pieces of the old Russian empire as possible. Former American President Barack Obama had hoped for a reset with Russia, but it takes two to tango, and relations have been less than desirable. Now Russia states that it would indeed want a reset, but not a reset to a better relationship, but a reset to a Cold War power structure, in which Russia would have more of a free hand to wield its influence and gain power again for Russia, a plan where the West and Russia would again have spheres of influence. This loss of influence is what is concerning Russia right now. Many of the countries that have long historical ties to the Russian Empire have either left Russia's fear of influence or are currently attempting to. I think Putin sees this period of time as critical for Russia, but even more importantly, for his own legacy and his desire to restore Russia's perceived loss of greatness. In Russian history, greatness has always been tied to the empire. There are and always have been many cultural groups that make up the Russian Empire. The problem is, greatness for Russia could mean the loss of sovereignty for some nations. It's a very important time for Estonia's future right now. During the presidency of Donald Trump, the confidence of NATO's partners was somewhat shaken. It seemed like some of the lost confidence is beginning to come back. Just recently, both Finland's President Sauli Ninisto and Prime Minister Sana Marin declared that they would keep the country's options open with regard to joining NATO, 
the thought has been that Finland or Sweden would join NATO together at the same time. But there is more momentum building in Finland for joining NATO than there currently appears to be in Sweden, as the ruling Swedish Democrats have been against joining the defensive alliance. But with more Russian troop mobilizations into other sovereign nations, such as just what happened in Kazakhstan, in order to prop up and support their beleaguered president, or the mobilization of Russian troops to the Ukrainian border, as another bigger example. The Swedes are paying close attention. If Finland and Sweden do join the defensive alliance, this would be as good of a situation for Estonia as anyone could hope for. The Baltic Seas would become what I heard former President Thomas Hendrik Ilves refer to as a NATO lake when he was recently on the podcast Power Vertical this last weekend. If Finland and Sweden join NATO, it would mean friends would be nearby and could help in the case of trouble, which of course we don't want and would be terrible for everybody. In this episode, we will move on in our historical timeline, back into the 1970s Soviet Estonia, and we will cover the Estonian SSR in the new era of Russification. This is the third such Russification campaign that we've covered and learned about in Estonia in the 100 years starting in 1885, when a new governor-general to Estonia named Duke Sergei Shevskoy changed all tuition and learning to the Russian language in Estonia. The second occurred on the heels of World War II. The number of Estonians had dropped to 854,000 because of the war. From 1945 to 1950, the population increased by 170,000 Russian-speaking settlers. And the third will be covered in this episode. How long can or will a small cultural group hold on to their language and customs, which are distinct and unique? It seems as long as there is peace and independence from Russia. That is why a defensive alliance with a healthy NATO is critical for Estonia and its successful long-term viability. The Estonian SSR in the New Era of Russification In the 1970s, the official national policy of the Soviet Union centered on the idea that the people living on the territory of the Soviet Union would fuse into one Soviet people, Homo Sovieticus. In the majority of the Union republics of the Soviet Union, including the Estonian SSR, a systematic execution of that policy meant Russification in its essence. The leaders of the Estonian SSR did not seem to Moscow to be the right people to carry out the new national policy. In 1978, Johannes Kabin was moved from the post of party leader to that of chairman of the Supreme Soviet of the Estonian SSR. Thus, Kabin was moved aside from the big policy of the Estonian SSR. Cabin supported the candidacy of Vino Valius for the post of first secretary of the party, but Moscow did not find a, a candidate of local descent acceptable. They appointed the Siberian-born Karl Vino, who was practically unable to speak Estonian, but was firmly loyal to Moscow as first secretary of the Central Committee of the ECP.
Vino was born in Tomsk, Russia in 1923. In 1947, he was sent to the Estonian SSR as a party functionary. He was an obedient apparatchik who worked as secretary for industry of the Central Committee of the ECP for many years before his lucky break arrived. After Vino had taken office, several national communists were forced to leave the leadership of the Estonian SSR. Vino Velius was sent into political exile by being appointed as Soviet ambassador to Venezuela. The change of those in power in the summer of 1978 facilitated the start of the campaign of Russification in the Estonian SSR. In December 1978, the Central Committee of the ECP adopted a confidential resolution on the further improvement of acquisition and teaching of the Russian language, which relied on corresponding all-union regulation. The resolution attached extraordinary ideology and political importance to the learning and teaching of the Russian language. An active propaganda campaign began on the usefulness of knowing Russian. The main slogan of the campaign was bilingualism. Only a person who speaks their mother tongue and the language of international com communication, Russian, deserves to be considered fully valuable. The rather questionable principle followed was, when a person speaks two languages, he or she becomes a double person. A primary aim was to increase the role of the Russian language in education. In newspapers, a purposeful campaign was carried out for bilingual kindergartens and schools in partial transfer to the Russian language tuition at the universities. In 1976, an order had already been established that scientific dissertations had to be written and defended in the Russian language. In reality, this policy aimed at one-sided bilingualism, as the Estonians had to, to acquire the Russian language, whereas representatives of other nationalities living in Estonia did not have a similar obligation to learn Estonian. The limitless glorification of the Russian language reached its peak in 1980 when the language of international communication began to be taught in kindergartens and the first year of primary school. And the quotas for entrance to university departments delivering lectures in Russian were increased. The pressure of Russification strengthened the feeling that the national culture was in danger. This in turn gave rise to dissatisfaction in society which found its expression in youth unrest that took place in the autumn of 1980. The appointment of Elsa Grichkina as Minister of Education played a significant role in initiating a spontaneous wave of protest among pupils and students because she was thought to be a supporter of Russification. In September 1980, a student demonstration was induced by authorities Dispersal of a football match between television and radio staff at Kadriorg Stadium and the concert by the punk group Propeller that was supposed to follow the match. In response, the young people who had gathered to watch the match and concert went on a spontaneous protest march. 
the militia started to arrest the participants. Later, many of those who had been arrested were expelled from their schools. This gave rise to extensive solidarity protests in schools, leading to street unrest in Tallinn on October 1st. The militia and security forces were mobilized to, quote, normalize the situation in the town. Later, the authorities attempted to label the participants of the street unrest as hooligans. The youth unrest activated a mood of protest among the intelligentsia. In October to November 1980, a group of intellectuals composed an open letter from the Estonian SSR, which was addressed to the editorial offices of the central papers of the USSR and the ESSR, Pravda, Rafahol, and Sovietskaya Estonia, all newspapers. The letter was signed by 40 well-known Estonian intellectuals who hoped to direct the attention of those in power to problems and negative processes in society, such as the question of language, increasing immigration, and failures in youth policy. The letter was a sort of attempt to humanize the existing regime. As a result, the authorities directed their efforts not towards easing the tension in society, but towards eliminating those who had composed the letter from social life. They were either dismissed from work or prohibited from performing in public. The letter of 40 found widespread support among the people. Handwritten copies of it were illegally passed from hand to hand, and the mood of protest among the people increased. Publishing the letter abroad attracted the attention of the outer world to Estonia. As the yachting event of the 1980 Moscow Olympic Games had done. In any event, the policy of the further Russification became somewhat milder in the Estonian SSR. In the middle of the 1970s, attempts to form a central organization of dissidents in Estonia or in any other Baltic countries failed due to their low numbers of supporters and effective preventive action by the KGB but activities against the existing regime became much more widespread in this period. The main forms of activity were open letters and applications to the authorities, international organizations, and governments of foreign countries. One direction followed was to find out about violations of human rights, to obtain documentary evidence and publicize it, and also to pass true information about the real situation in the Estonian SSR to emigre organizations. At the end of the 1970s, the first real contacts were established between the organizations of Estonian emigres and the dissidents in Estonia. The basis of these contacts was laid by the Center for Assisting Imprisoned Dissidents of Estonia, founded in Stockholm in 1978. The organization also had committees in Canada, the USA, and Australia. In 1978, an underground publication, Additions to the Free Dissemination of Thought and News in Estonia, started to appear in the Estonian SSR, bringing together all the important applications, memoranda, surveys, and political trials, and more. 
It also included articles about Estonian history and political overviews of neighboring countries. One form of resistance was the reproduction and distribution of original or officially forbidden written works. Many participants in the resistance movement made what were called one-man application protests, which exposed the real nature of the regime in power. Collective memoranda proved more influential. In 1979, a group of Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian dissidents 45 people altogether, composed an open letter to the governments of the Soviet Union, the German Federal Republic, the German Democratic Republic, and other countries as well as the Secretary General of the UN, Kurt Waldheim. The letter was timed for the 40th anniversary of the notorious Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, and it demanded the disclosure and invalidation of the secret protocols of the pact as well as the abolition of all its consequences. This common letter by the Baltic dissidents became known as the Baltic Appeal. On the basis of this, the European Parliament adopted a resolution in 1983 demanding restoration of independence of the Baltic states. The Baltic Appeal was followed by several other appeals to the public of the world and to the neighboring states. When the resistance movement came out into the open, the repressive policy of the authorities increased. The most active dissidents were arrested. Political trials were arranged, and they were sent to prison camps. The member of academic staff of Tartu University, Yuri Kuk, was tried for his anti-Soviet way of thinking. He died in a prison camp in Russia in 1981. The last person to be sent to a restricted regime prison camp was in Tartu. This ended the open resistance movement in Estonia. The regime in power had seemingly eliminated the resistance movement. In fact, the relative silence that followed was a period of preparation for the resistance of 1987, which grew into a general resistance in 1988. An Economic Cul-de-Sac In the 1970s, the resources for extensive development of industry and agriculture ran out in the Soviet Union. The Soviet economic model continued to exist first and foremost on account of the dollars received for oil. Although the economic figures of the Estonian SSR surpassed the average level of the Soviet Union, the drop was felt there as well. During Karl Vino's years in office, the development of agriculture had been subjected to the All-Union Nourishment Program. This meant increasing the contribution of the Estonian SSR of meat and dairy products to the All-Union Fund. Based on imported grain, pig breeding was extensively developed in Estonia. In order to receive grain imports, the new port was built in Tallinn. At the same time, local consumption decreased, as the choice of goods in the shops became smaller and smaller. Due to constant shortages of consumer goods, the crisis of foodstuffs increased. In industry, the situation where local economic policy was shaped by the all-union services based on their interest continued to exist. 
By the end of the 1970s, the administration of industry of the Estonian SSR was subjected to 19 all-union ministries and organizations, as well as to 23 union republics or local ministries. By the 1980s, more than 90% of industry was subjected to all-union institutions. A significant proportion of industrial production of the Estonian SSR was of military importance. The technological backwardness of industry compared to comparable industries in the Western countries increased. One of the characteristics of the economic cul-de-sac was the growth of a shadow economy, which became a regular feature of everyday life. As there was a shortage of everything, only those having the right acquaintances could lead a normal life. Accumulation of Social Problems The onslaught of the new wave of Russification and the continuing extensive economic policy increased social and political as well as ideological problems in society. From the point of view of the native people, the most negative consequence was a further increase in tension in the demographic situation. The extensive development of industry had increased the influx of immigrants, which gradually reduced the proportion of Estonians among the population of the Estonian SSR, as well as overpopulating the towns. By the 1980s, Estonians formed less than 65% of the population. The urban population formed 70% of the total population of Estonia. The increase in the proportion of immigrants strained relations between the native people and the newcomers. The official policy of providing people with flats to live in added more tension. The majority of the newcomers quickly received new convenient flats, with central heating and hot and cold running water, in new dwelling areas of the towns. For Estonians, this extended the time they had to wait to get new flats. Some regions of Estonia, especially the big industrial towns of the eastern part of Viru County, became completely Russian-speaking as a result of the settlement policy, and the few remaining Estonians left the towns. As compared with the earlier period, the distance from which people settled in Estonia became increasingly greater. Initially, the workforce had been brought in from neighboring regions of Russia. An example is the Peskov province. But in the 1980s, the immigrants came from the furthest areas of the Soviet Empire. The policy facilitating immigration was backed by the all-union ministries and industrial enterprises subjected to them, as they constantly needed additional workforce. Workers were looked for in different regions of the Soviet Union, and those who agreed to move to Estonia were promised better work and living conditions. This kind of immigration policy suited people who felt at home anywhere and considered better consumer conditions to be the most important factor. This was the overwhelming mentality among the newcomers. In spite of the active renationalization policy, the native people did not mingle with the immigrants. The newcomers have also not become fused with Estonians. The majority of immigrants have preserved their language and traditions. This was fostered by the duplicated system of education, 
beginning with kindergartens and finishing with university education, in which it was possible to learn either in Estonian or in Russian. The extensive development of industry, which did not take into account the natural resources of Estonia, caused a considerable worsening of the ecological situation. Alongside the colonial economy, a second cause of pollution was the Soviet army and its military bases. The lack of hope and prospects for the future deepened social pessimism in society, which was expressed by an increased consumption of alcohol and a growth in the number of suicides. In addition to these, the Afghanistan war from 1979 to 1989 claimed the lives and health of numerous Estonian young men. And this is where we will leave our historical timeline from the book, History of Estonia, published in 1997 and written by Tonu Tonberg, Ein Messalu, Tonis Lucas, Matti Lauer, and Ago Pajer. The divide between U.S. and Western Europe on one side, and always opposed on the opposite side is Russia, is based on the circumstances of post-World War II Europe. At the time, it was a somewhat existential threat to both powers. Both communism and capitalism were competing fiercely to be the main economic system in the world. This difference is no longer a reality today, but the hard feelings still remain. Hopefully this will change. Thanks for listening, and until next time, Nagamiseni.